again. I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. You'll find that on page 1046 of your pew Bible. We're looking at the uh, parables of Jesus with the overarching theme of uh, windows to God's kingdom. So we want to peek through the window and see what more we can learn and come to understand so we can also be transformed in our thinking and in our actions. I'd like to invite you today to think about the issue of motivation. If you read mystery books, watch a movie that has some law enforcement element or the element of a courtroom drama involved in it, very often one of the key issues that has to be uncovered and revealed is the issue of motivation. It tries to answer the why question. I was going to talk a little bit more about the movies and books, but on the way to church this morning, I had just gotten onto uh, the Trans-Canada Highway, and I had locked in cruise control at 100 kilometers an hour, and all of a sudden I heard this roar come past me, and there was this motorcycle that had to be doing at least 140 kilometers, if not 160, which in the old translation would be 100 miles an hour. And he won't weave, I'm assuming it was a guy, couldn't figure it out and went too fast, but weaved in and out of traffic. And I thought to myself, why? Maybe he was late for church. <laughs> Maybe he had a creek someplace. <laughs> they were waiting for him. About 10 kilometers up the road, there was a motorcycle in the ditch. An SUV with the rear panel ripped off. And about 10 kilometers, and that motorcycle and whatever was surrounded by people, so I felt free to keep on driving. But another five kilometers up the road, I saw a fire truck coming quickly, and right behind the fire truck, an ambulance. And I'm going to just assume, because no other motorcycles would have passed me, that was the person who had passed just minutes before. And I asked, why? What was the burning issue? Was it just simply the desire for speed? I have a brother who is a medical doctor and he often assists surgeons at surgery. And he says, we no longer call them motorcycles, we call them donor cycles. Because we harvest organs and transplant. Why? Well, you want to enrich a person's life. You replace a cornea and they can see. You replace a, a liver and they have a lease on life. You replace a kidney and suddenly no more dialysis. You enrich people's lives. But sometime today, a police officer is going to show up at this motorcycle's parent's house and knock on the door and at the speed that this person was moving, in all likelihood will announce either very serious injuries or death. And you ask, why? We're trying to peek into the kingdom of God. 
that which Jesus came to bring. And that's what Jesus came to unfold. And it comes to us to unfold even further. And for that purpose, we need to understand things about the kingdom. And we need to understand things about ourselves. How then shall we live if we are recipients of God's kingdom? Sometimes in desperation. This morning, William experienced a crash motherboard. In desperation, he ran around for a tripod, that's his phone, I'm assuming, and it's all clicked together. But sometimes you live in desperation. Sometimes you live in gratitude. We come around this table and we think about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his death, prior to that, his suffering, his sorrow, his pain, his questions. Father, why have you forsaken? Well, we come and we remember that the gate, the door to heaven is open and we can come in. We look at the kingdom and we are motivated to think, how then shall we live? And this parable that I want to read with you this morning comes to that whole issue of motive and motivation. There are three separate uh, elements to it, or three persons. There's the host, there's the group of people who come, and then there's Jesus. So we're going to look to this parable, or through this story, through their particular lenses of motivation. And we're going to try and answer the question, why? And then ultimately come to the answer the question for myself, and I hope for yourself, how then shall I live? As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of his majesty, the King. Luke chapter 14, verse 1 reads, One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There, in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Let me just stop there for a moment and say if you are a reader of the Revised Standard Version or the King James Version, there will be an interesting word. It's called, it's dropsy. He was suffering from dropsy. We'll get to that. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked him, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked up the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, 
for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus says to his, said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Though they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. So to look at a situation through a particular lens is to strive to understand it. So let's look at this situation through the lens of the host, the prominent Pharisee. A prominent Pharisee. To remember that the Pharisees were called that because they were the separated ones. They, they were very concerned about keeping the laws of God. And they strove to achieve that. They were motivated by the idea if they could achieve it perfectly, by keeping the law, then the Messiah would come. And so they had a motive, a reason for doing it. And this Pharisee is described as a prominent one. Not a sort of a, you know, come by chance Pharisee. This is a, a person who was really determined to live in a certain and a particular way. Recall the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees with regard to the law without flaw. He was perfect. And then he says, I count all that stuff as garbage for the surpassing privilege of knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. But Paul and so many others had striven to achieve. In that sense, they were different from the Sadducees. The Sadducees, with the Pharisees and some others, made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. A wag has said that is why they're sad, you see. You see, but, 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 but the reality was that most Sadducees belonged to the elite, to the higher level, and they would inherit their titles and inherit their possessions. They didn't have to strive too hard. They had it sort of easier. But the Pharisees, they strove. And this guy had achieved prominence. He was recognized. He was a somebody. And because he was somebody, he's now inviting people to come to his house after Sabbath service. And you get the idea when you look closely at the details because there are other Pharisees, plural, present. Jesus is present. 
His apostles, followers, disciples, at least the 12 of them, are in all likelihood are present. There are others, like the, the women who supported Jesus in his ministry, they are likely present. There are other guests at the table. This isn't sort of a casual Sunday after church meal with soup and buns. This sounds more like an extravagant wedding banquet. And people have gathered, and the Pharisee appears to have an agenda. They are watching Jesus closely because right in front of him is a man who has abnormally swollen joints and other swellings in his body. RSV, or Revised Standard Version, King James Version says he is dropsy. I had to look that up. I didn't know what that meant. Well, dropsy means that you have swollen ankles, other uh, parts of your body are swollen. Today, doctors would call it edema, related to congestive heart failure and kidney malfunction in all likelihood. And you need to have medication for it. But this person was struggling and he's placed right in front of Jesus, and I think very deliberately so, to strive to entrap Jesus, to trick him, to see what he would do. Because the Pharisees have a track record of trying to do that. They like to ask questions about Jesus paying tax and disciples in other functions, and they want to see if they can trap Jesus. Because if this Pharisee can trap Jesus and trip him up and expose him to be a fraud, imagine what that will do to his prominence. It will just raise it up. And it will become higher and higher and higher. And he will get more honor and more recognition. How then shall we live? And then there's a group of other people. Now, there are the guests at the table, or in all likelihood, at the tables. You have to imagine them, because most of our tables are rectangular or they're circular. But the tables that would have been used at this time would have been U-shaped like this. And people would have sat around the edges. The hoax would have sat at the bottom of the U-shape in the middle. And those who were closest to him would be immediately on his right and on his left, and so forth. Just think of it like a wedding banquet, where you have the head table, and you have the bride and the groom and their wedding party at the head table. And then closest to the head table, in all likelihood, are the tables for the parents and the grandparents and the others who are closest to the bride and groom, and then, while well, the hoi polloi are further away. <laughs> That's just the way it's arranged. And we understand And we accept that. Now, the guests are there, and Jesus has been watching them. And they have been striving to be close to the prominent one close to this host, to this Pharisee, who is a somebody. 
It's sort of like hangers on. If they can get close, maybe they can get their autograph. If they can get close, maybe they can get a recognition. Maybe they can ask for a favor. And maybe that favor would be granted. And so everybody is striving to be close to the prominent, close to the seat of power. And Jesus addresses that. He looks at them and he asks them to think, just like he has asked, we'll get back to that, but he asked the Pharisee to think, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And so he's asking them to think about their behavior by telling them a story. It's compared to the story of the Good Samaritan, not much of a story really. It's just a, 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 a set of observations. He says, when, when you come in, don't strive for the highest place. Rather, strive for the lowest place. Because then you have the chance of being promoted and recognized by the one who already has prominence. And you will be exalted. And he summarizes it all when he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So don't strive for the highest place. Recognize that you may not be as important as you think you are. You have this picture that I wanted to have. There you go. Anybody recognize this man? Died in 1941. His name, if I can pronounce it right, is Nazi Paderewski. He was a musician and a composer and a Polish government official. In 1919, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, he was the foreign minister of the land of Poland, and his signature is on the Treaty of Versailles, which ends the Second or the First World War. The next slide. He was Polish Prime Minister from January 18, 1919 till November the 27th, 1919. But his claim to fame, really, was that he was an internationally recognized pianist and composer. And when he died, he was in the United States, he was raising awareness of what the Polish people were going through in the Second World War, and he was raising funds to help those who were suffering. Very prominent man in his time. Now I tell that story because prior to his death, uh, a museum had been opened in Bonn, Germany, and in that museum was the piano of Ludwig Beethoven. Beethoven, if you are a classic music lover, is one of the great composers in history. That piano had been used by Beethoven 
to compose a number of his pieces of music. And a visitor came to that museum and said to the guard, can I play a few notes on that, music, on that piano? And slipped him some cash as a incentive and received permission. And so this person sat down at Beethoven's piano and played the opening pieces of Moonlight Sonata. And then got up and said to the guard, I suppose many of the world's pianists come and ask for this privilege. And the guard looked at her and said, Paderewski was here just recently and wouldn't touch it because he did not think himself worthy. Blessed are you when you take the lower seat and then get exalted. Don't strive for the higher seat. Recognize your limits. You know, he was here a few years ago and he said he was unworthy to touch it. And now we're going to look at all of this through the lens of Jesus. Because Jesus is being set up. This person with swollen body, abnormally swollen portions of his body is there. And Jesus says, I need to take the opportunity to challenge you to teach you, to have you come to a point where you can mature as a person and perhaps even as a follower of me. And so he invites us to think. And he says to the prominent Pharisee and to those around him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And notice they don't say anything. Why? Well, if they say yes, they will break their own Sabbath observance rules because their rule on the Sabbath was you could only apply medical intervention in the cases of emergency. So this person who crashed on Highway 1 this morning, you could apply medical care. But if you have a simple cold, no, doesn't qualify. But if they say no, then they would come across as sort of heartless. So they don't say anything. They're just sitting there, stupefied. And then Jesus follows up with something that I find really interesting. He lays hold on this person. He lays hold on this man. It's almost like he says, I'm going to go out of my way to acknowledge your presence. I'm going to touch you. I'm going to know or to acknowledge that you are here at the behest of these people because they want to trip me up and I want to stand right beside you. And we're not told how it happened, but it just simply 
he was healed. The swelling disappeared, his kidneys started to function properly, his heart started to function properly again. Lots of changes happened, and then, and then he sends the man away. Why? Because he doesn't want the man to be the center of attention. Well, when he has healed other people, if you go to one of the other gospel stories, you know, the blind man was healed, and, and he gets into all sorts of trouble, and his parents get into all sorts of trouble, because, well, it happened on the Sabbath day, and was he born blind or not? And there are lots of questions about that. It becomes the center of attention, and they all become very uncomfortable because, well, the rules are such that if you don't adhere to us, you can't come to our synagogue anymore. So Jesus sends this person away for his own well-being, I think. And then he gives the audience another opportunity to think. If any one of you would have a child or an ox that fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you not immediately go and rescue? And they don't say anything. But the implied answer is, yeah, of course. Why? Well, because, well, it's my child. And if I leave my child in the ditch to suffer until a certain time of day, I wouldn't be very merciful on my part. And this ox, well, that's my ox, or my neighbor's ox, and we count on that ox for plowing and harvest and for other stuff. And that's our ox, and so we have investment in that ox. And that's important, and it helps us on our road to prominence to have a healthy ox. Of course. Of course we would. And they say nothing. Because they're wanting to trap Jesus. They're not wanting to grow themselves. And so then Jesus comes and he speaks directly to the host. And he says, um, no doubt, no doubt, you're going to have opportunity to do this again. To have another feast after a Sabbath worship time. I'm going to challenge you to think and act differently. Instead of engaging in the possibility, and here's a big word, but I like it. Instead of engaging in the possibility of reciprocity, I'll do something for you, and then you can do something for me, but maybe a little higher. And then I'll do something for you, and then, you know, you'll do something for me again. So don't, he says, invite your brothers and sisters and other Pharisees and prominent people who, who, can, who can bring you up in the idea of the society. Now, the next time you have a feast, then you invite the indigenous. You invite the poor, the impoverished, the lame, the weak. The ones who could not possibly repay, repay you, but the ones who are desperately in need of care and of support. Reminds me of a description of a soccer game. Somebody said, what is a soccer game? 
demonstrate. And this person said, well, there are 22 players on the pitch in desperately, desperately in need of a rest. And there are 22,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> These people in the background who are standing around wondering what it's like to have a meal like that, they need to be invited. So the next time you do this, invite them. And then think about what will happen when you are recognized in the resurrection of the righteous. The resurrection of the righteous. Who are they? Who are they? Who are the righteous? Well, you know Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and the book of Hebrews and the stories about Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Who are the righteous? Those who are born again in Jesus. Those who by faith are justified by grace through faith. Justification is a big word. Lots of people look at it and say, oh, that's too big for me to deal with. You can break it up into this nice little uh, idea. Just as if I'd never sinned nor been a sinner. To be righteous means to be cleansed in Jesus. To be washed in his blood. And you will be honored then in the resurrection of the righteous. When all of us come together at judgment day, you will be acknowledged by my Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because you were motivated by humility. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful, wonderful uh, definition of humility. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Let me repeat that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Repeat that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not about me. It's not about being prominent. It's not about being recognized. It is about being available to serve. How then shall I live? I live as a servant of the God in whose image I am made. I will come, and in the words of Paul, as he describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, I will come and empty myself as Jesus emptied himself, and I will just simply love 
to the best of my ability. So Jesus asks questions. Is it lawful? Would you rescue a child? Knox? I'm going to ask us all to ponder some questions. If you were asked to do something without reward, would you still do it? If you were asked to do something with the certainty that you would suffer in doing so, would you still do it? And let me conclude by just referencing something that happened to me. I had a spiritual coach once, a spiritual advisor, who listened to some of the things that I was talking about and said, said to me, for the next six months, I want you to be focused on excising the word I out of every conversation that you have and everything that you write. Try that sometimes. Just get rid of the word I. And then you will discover that you need to be deeper in your thinking and more focused on whose servant you are. And then you will remember him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. It's not easy. It's not easy to live in humility. We live in a society that exalts the great, that recognizes them, they get all the headlines. But help us to remember that when we are there, to be merciful as you were merciful, then we will anticipate being recognized by you at the resurrection of the righteous. So Holy Spirit, come and fill us all and help us to ponder the questions that have been posed and help us to respond as Jesus would have us respond. Not being silent, but being engaged. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.